Do I take your... Oh good, we're live. <laughs> Forgot we had a video. Alright, <laughs> if you want to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. One quick thing that I wish I'd highlighted better from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 4 last week, was the fact that as Jesus Christ reveals himself... It's not simply that Jesus is revealed, right? As Jesus reveals himself, as we know the Son, who do we know? As you and I know the Son, we know the Father. And so Jesus has revealed himself. He's made himself known. Because Jesus is known, God the Father can be known. And so it's no surprise that as we enter into verse 5, what does he say? He tells us who God is. It's... It's an introduction, really, to leading to this is who God is. God is light. And this theological truth that he's going to continue to develop as we work our way, even from this sermon, is really anchored is in, is founded in this theological truth. This theological truth, then, is the foundation for 1 John chapter 1, 5 to 2, verse 2. But I think it goes even further. This theological truth is what allows John to move forward and call you and I to live in a drastically different way from the world around us. And so, life in the light. What does that look like for you and I? We're living <laughs> beings. We're alive and we're called to do that in relationship to the light. In relationship to God who is light, who is holy. And so I think the big idea, before we really dive into the passage and read it, I think that the big idea that the passage is seeking to communicate to you and seeking to communicate to me is that God's holiness demands we confess our sins and pursue holiness through Jesus Christ. God's holiness demands we confess our sins and pursue holiness through Jesus Christ. If you would, let's, let's read the passage, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, all the way through chapter 2, verse 2. Verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the whole 
world. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your character, that you are distinctly other from us. That while we often sin in numerous ways, multiple times a day, that you are different. That you are holy in the middle of a very dark world. A world that is full of sin and evil and Forsaking your truth, you shine distinctly different from us. We pray that as we meditate upon that truth, that you are different, that you are holy, that it would cause us to meditate on whether or not our lives reflect who we say is our Father. And that as we do so, that it would call us to live lives that are pursuing holiness and faithfulness to you. To a greater degree than we did last week. In your name we pray. Amen. The passage is really going to begin by establishing the foundation upon which John will then make his argument. And the, the foundation, what allows him to make this argument, is that God is holy. Our standard is God's holiness. That's the foundation upon which he's going to continue to build his argument, make his case for living distinctly drastically different from the world around us. And so he begins in verse 5 and he says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so what he's getting at is not so much that God is revelation. Okay, Sometimes we think, you know, thy word is a light unto my path and that's maybe what we kind of maybe think about this passage. And while that's, that's true in a sense, I think that the bigger idea is elevating God's holiness. And God's holiness, as we meditate upon it, makes us look at our own lives and our own paths and we're like, wow. But it's not really primarily saying that God is revelation, telling us how to live. It's saying God is so distinctly holy and different from us that it causes us to meditate upon our lives. It causes us to think about who he is. God is holy, and because he is holy, he is claiming the exceeding otherness of God. He's drastically different from you and I. And so he is the standard of truth, and he is righteous. That is what is being claimed here in this passage. And in case maybe we missed it, he concludes, as he concludes this introductory theological concept, and he says... Not only is God light, he goes on to say, and in him is no darkness at all. In direct contrast to the fact that God is truth, he is the standard of truth, he is the, he is the perfect example of what truth lived out would look like, righteous, right? There is no error, there is no evil in him. This is a standard that John has set up. And as he sets up the standard, he's now going to pull back and he's going to say, okay, so there's two different groups here. And he's writing to the believers that are hearing about this false teaching of who Jesus Christ is. And as they hear about this false teaching, it's causing them to ask questions like, why should I actually pursue what John says about Jesus instead of what all these false teachers are saying about Jesus? 
what John is saying is it's harder to live by. It's harder to actually do. It'd be easier to do what the false teachers are saying to do. Why pursue something different? And so John is going to answer those questions. And so he's imagining if I was arguing from the false teacher's side, the, the side with the antichrists, what would be some of the arguments that I might put forward and say, well, what about dot, dot, dot? And so you'll notice as he works his way through in verse 6, in verse 8, and in verse 10, he's going to say, if we say. These are the arguments that he's supposing that the other side may bring. And he's going to argue against those arguments and say these are false ideas. And this is the correct teaching that corrects and allows us to go forward in a way that is honoring to God, pursuing holiness and righteousness and obedience to God. This is the true gospel. And this is what the true gospel requires of you and I. And so in verse 6, fellowship requires holiness. Some of them were saying that we have fellowship with him, that is God, and we walk in darkness. We have fellowship with God, and yet we walk in error, and we walk in what is evil. That's what they're claiming. And John's going to come back and say, if you say that, you lie and you do not practice the truth. Fellowship does not occur in darkness. It does not happen in that setting. Just like earlier in the passage, he's talked about fellowship and how if you don't believe what he said about Jesus in verses 1 through 4, you don't have fellowship. It's not enough to just simply say, yes, I believe what John says about Jesus in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that he has revealed himself and that through him, God the Father is revealed. It's not enough to just say, yes, I believe who Jesus is. I believe who God the Father is. He says, if you want fellowship with God, then you must walk in the light. You must pursue holiness. You must pursue righteousness. And you can't have both. You can't say, well, I pursue a life of, of evil outside of church, and then I put on my happy face for Jesus, and I come to church, and we have this great communion and great fellowship with one another and with God. He's saying, fellowship does not occur in darkness. Fellowship and your sin, fellowship and my sin, do not go together. If we believe this, we're lying to ourselves. And he goes on and he says, the truth is not in us. Those who make this claim are liars who do not practice the truth. It's not necessarily that they're not Christians. Though it does mean that you really better examine yourself if this is what you believe. But at the very least, they're not practicing the truth. Because the truth requires change. The truth requires that you live differently. And he's going to go on. So he's, he's told them what some might say, and he's told them this is wrong. But he's going to go on and say, this is how you live instead. Verse 6 then is telling you the argument that is wrong. Verse 7 then is the correction. How do we live in a correct way 
in relationship to this idea that we can, we can live in evil, we can live in wickedness, and have fellowship with God, have fellowship with one another. Securing fellowship and forgiveness comes by walking in the light. Securing fellowship and forgiveness comes by walking in the light. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If you and I want to be people who are secure in our fellowship with God, if we want to be people who are secure in our fellowship with one another, where we actually have that shared common goal, that shared bond that he's talked about in verse 3, then it comes by walking in the light, pursuing holiness. He's going to move on. And He's going to talk about two different things, and I really think that these two different things, what he talks about in verse 8 and what he talks about in verse 10 are, are actually the same thing. But he's going to show us that denial of sin will bring harm, and it brings harm in two different ways. He's going to begin by really talking about us as individuals. How does, when I get up and I say, as they say in verse 8, I don't have sin, he says that harms you. And then he's going to correct it in verse 9. And then verse 10 is going to come back once again and say, I don't have sin. And he's going to say, not only does that harm you, that portrays God in a very wrong way. Okay? So denial of sin will bring harm, and it brings harm in two different ways. There's the personal aspect, but there's also this, this aspect where your belief system about God is drastically harmed by this statement. Some may claim that they are without sin. That's in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Okay? And so if, if, if we get up and we say, well, I do not sin. I'm free from sin. He's saying, you're deceiving yourself. You've deceived yourself. And so denial, then, is deception. When you and I say, well, we're, I'm free from sin. I'm not really um, that bad. I don't, I don't struggle with sin. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. He's saying, you are deceived. And he's going to, there's, there's implications that we can draw from this. Our deception then blinds us from asking important questions, right? If we believe that we are free from sin, think of all the truths that Scripture tells us about who God is and why he sent Jesus Christ. And if you believe that you are without sin, where does that put you in your relationship between you and Jesus Christ? So it brings up questions. Am I examining my heart as I should? Are we really asking the questions that we should be asking about our motives, about our actions? Because if we're really doing the hard work of examining our actions, of examining our motives, and the trials and the difficulties and the hardships that we go through in life, it's going to reveal areas where 
nothing else, our passions and our emotions are pursuing something that is wrong. And so it also must require that we say, if denial leads to deception, could it possibly be that I am not a believer? Could I maybe think that I am a Christian, but I'm not? Because if we think that something as foundational as Scripture says that we're all sinners is something that doesn't apply to you, should cause us to ask ourselves, am I truly a believer? Have I truly realized that my sin separates me from God and that there is nothing that I could possibly do in and of myself to achieve a righteous standing before God? And that I am in need of Jesus Christ's Sacrifice on the cross. Have you truly placed your faith in Christ's finished work? When we deny our sins, it leads to deception, and any kind of solution or um, deception is possible. Even believing something that is not as true as you are not a child of God. Denial breeds deception. Am I, fall, am I allowing the truth to work in me as it should? These are some of the questions that I believe the denial of sin may lead to you being deceived about in your own life. And so the danger is very real. You will be deceived. It may be about your salvation. It may be about your own Christian life and how you're living it and some of the things that you're pursuing. But if you deny sin, you are being deceived. But it's interesting, it doesn't simply say that denial makes you a deceiver of yourself. As he continues to develop this idea later on, in verse 10, he says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him, who? God, a liar, and his word is not in us. Denial calls God a liar. The denier then is confused about their own position. Why? Because what does God say about their position? God says that all have sinned. It's a really simple concept. And when the denier says, I, I have not sinned, what they're doing is they're saying, God, you are a liar. And so they're confused about their own position. The denier is further confused about God's position. They forgot that God is just, right? And that God knows everything. Why? Because he is the just judge. He is the judge that really everybody wants, unless they're a sinner, right? Because we all, you know, even if it's just as a child, you look at a parenting decision and you're like, I got spanked for that person's sin, right? We've all been there, unless you're an only child. You know, Anastasia has not yet been disciplined in any way for Eliana's sin, right? It hasn't happened, okay? But there will come a day where we'll make the wrong decision, and we'll tell her that she loses some privileges or some other discipline procedure will happen. 
because we misunderstood a situation. It'll happen. But with God, he is just. He never punishes the wrong person. Right? And Daniel looks at the situation and says, it wasn't my fault, I didn't do it, and it calls God a liar. It misunderstands God's position. God is just, and because he is just, he must punish such a one if they persist in that behavior. And so what is the solution to this situation? The solution to these false claims in verse 8 and in verse 10 is in verse 10. How do we solve the situation where somebody would be willing to stand up in a community and say, I am without sin, they're deceiving themselves, and they're calling God a liar? How does someone reconcile that position? And what he says in verse 9 is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The solution for deception is confession. The solution for your deception about your own position, the solution for the deception and the misperceptions that you have about God's character is confession. God's character is just, which requires that he punishes and it's interesting, denial means God's judgment looms heavy over your head. God's judgment looms heavy over your head. And yet, the just God that we expect to judge such a one, what does he say he will do to a person who comes before him and is willing to confess? He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The same truth that allows God to say, I'm going to judge you because you're in sin, is the same truth that becomes the foundational truth that allows him to say, I'm going to forgive you for your sin. Why is that? Why can God say, I am just, so I must judge sin. I must punish sin. Sin is an offense against a holy God. And then on the same same God say that the same character trait, his justice, allows him to forgive someone who sins. How do you have both? How do you have both? His justice allows him to forgive and his justice allows him to punish? How do you have both? I think it really ties in with John chapter 3 verse 16. Forgiveness is based on God's faithfulness and justice. And so what happens in John chapter 3? God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Is God just? Yes. God's faithful. He is consistent to his word. And he has promised that those who come before him Believing and accepting his free gift of salvation will what? Be forgiven. And so it is just for him to forgive those who come to him for forgiveness. That is how God's justice allows him to simultaneously judge one 
and forgive another. And both actions are based in the character trait that he is just. Isn't that cool? That is who God is, and that is what he offers us freely. Not because of anything that we have done or anything that we've done that would deserve his favor in that way. It's because he is gracious and merciful and desires to forgive those who will come to him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But he doesn't leave us there, right? And he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful and just so we can be righteous. We can be declared righteous because of Jesus' finished work. So confession, then, is the solution for our deception about our own selves and our misperceptions or our deception about God's character. And so as we look at ourselves and we say, you know, I don't really like to think that I'm a sinner in this little corner of my life. Then we are deceived. We're deceived about our own selves and we're deceived about who God is. And what John is telling us to do is to go before God's throne of grace and say, I was wrong. Forgive me. And he promises that he forgives and he declares you righteous. Forgiveness is then rooted in Christ's work. And this really picks up in verse 1 of chapter 2 and it goes through verse 2. John pleads with us to avoid sin. My little children. It's interesting. Just like in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, verse 4 really ends on a very pastoral note. You feel the heart, the love, the care that John has for this church or group of churches that he's writing to. The same thing is true here. He's been pretty strong with them, pretty firm with them. If you say this, the truth is not in you. That's not a popular type of thing to say in our culture. And it wasn't a popular thing to say in John's culture. Why? Because you're claiming complete, full truth. And if you don't accept complete, full truth, that means you're participating in something that's false. Nobody in any time of the world likes hearing that there's two choices. And the current choice that they're in is a wrong choice. That's not a popular message. If you want to be a Christian and be popular with everybody in the world, you're in the wrong group of people, okay? The message that we've been given to proclaim is not a message that makes you popular with the majority of people. Okay? You may not like it, but that's the truth. Okay? And so he, he pleads with them to avoid sin, but he does so in a way that is so gentle and so caring. He's, he's really told them, hey, look, there's two different groups. There's the true Christ and those who follow him, and there's the Antichrists. And these people are the Antichrists. But you guys are here. Stay here. Don't be tempted to change. Okay? And as he concludes, he's saying, please avoid sin. These things I write to you, why? So that you may not sin. And he's going to go on. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
Hopelessness has no place in the Christian life, right? After all that he said, right? It may seem like verse 1 is like super hard, right? He's just told them, if we say that we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves. I.e. what? Everybody's a sinner, right? That's pretty straightforward. Then in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, These things I write to you so that you may not sin. <laughs> we have a problem here, John, right? Because you just told us the previous verse that we all sin. And then in the next verse, you tell us, I write this so that you don't sin. Um, feels like you're torn between the two, right? It's because John knows everyone does sin. He wants you to pursue righteousness. He wants you to pursue holiness. He wants you to become more like God, the Father, and His holiness. And so he provides this awesome news of encouragement <laughs> as he concludes. Well, you know, it might have been like, super weighty and like overwhelming to us. He just told us we all sin, but don't sin. And he left it at that. Like, if you sin, you don't claim it. Okay? But the thing is, verse 9, okay? You've got to remember verse 9. It isn't whether or not we do sin or don't sin. It's how we respond when we do sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so hopelessness has no place in the Christian life. Why? Because even though we will sin, and we are called to a life that does not sin. That's what you're called to. You're not called to a life that tries to be less sinful than 50% of the rest of Des Moines. You're called to a life of holiness. And yet you will not measure up. I will not measure up. And I'm your pastor, okay? And I can't measure up to 100% holiness all the time. But it's not hopeless. Why? Because Christ is our advocate. Christ goes before the Father and says, I have made propitiation for their sins. I have paid the sacrifice that appeases your wrath. You no longer have to be angry with your child for their sin because I have paid the sacrifice I will go to bat so to speak for them and so that's why the Christian life is not a hopeless life without that news it really kind of be a hopeless life because we're called to holiness and we can't succeed and if we didn't have Christ who was willing to intercede for us, and a God who was willing to look at his own faithfulness and his own justice and say, I will forgive, we'd be in a really hopeless situation. Because there's no way you and I can survive such high requirements and end up coming out on the other side in the way that has pleased and honored God. So, we are not hopeless. Because we have an advocate. And our hope is found in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That is where our hope lies. 
Because without that, our sin would be something that we could never overcome. And we would deserve the wrath of God, and we would deserve punishment. And God would be faithful, and he would be just to send us to hell. But because he sent his son to come to die for our sins, we have an advocate with him, and we have the hope that we will be forgiven. And these truths aren't given so that we go, isn't that great? If I go out tomorrow and I sin again, it's okay. No. Chapter 2, verse 1 still says, these things I write to you so that you will not sin. Okay? I mean, you're not supposed to sin. But when you and I do sin, it's not a hopeless situation. There is hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what you and I must cling to this week. Because you will sin. It's a good chance that you'll sin sometime between now and when you go to bed. And when you do, there is hope. There is hope in the fact that Christ has paid the sacrifice and that he stands as our advocate before the Father. And so how do we live in light of these truths? What do I do differently? How do I react as I go through this coming week, right? Because if there's no, you know, what do I do as a result of all this, it's kind of pointless to even come. So we got to do something this week or else probably we shouldn't keep coming, right? We need to do something. What do we do? Rejoice in the holiness and the faithfulness and justice of God. These are the attributes of our God that are highlighted in this text. God is holy. Chapter 1, verse 5. God is faithful and he is just. Chapter 1, verse 9. These are truths that you and I should meditate upon, rejoice in, and live in light of this coming week. And we rejoice not just by singing and saying how great this is, but by living a life that is offered to Christ as a sacrifice. We confess our sins to God. Why? Because it's not a hopeless situation. Will you sin? Yes. But Christ has made a means by which you can be forgiven. And so we take advantage of the hope that we have, and we go to him and we confess our sins, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us. And even when the sin seems great, and how could God even possibly forgive us? Christ is the advocate who says, this situation isn't hopeless. Look what I did on the cross. We avoid sin. We don't pursue sin. We don't try to get as close to sin as possible. We avoid it. You know, one of the common phrases of our culture that I think has really adopted a new meaning in our 2020 era, right, is avoiding something like the plague. <laughs> and whatever your view is about COVID, you know people that avoid COVID-type situations like it's death itself. Like, if they get it, they're dead, their whole family's dead, everybody they've ever talked to is dead, 
Like, okay, it's not that bad, okay? Not everybody will die from COVID. But that's how we're supposed to live in relationship to sin. Avoid it at all costs. In all its forms of appearances, we're supposed to avoid sin. Do not pursue sin. Do not go close to sin. And then we rejoice in Christ's past and present ministry. That's really what chapter 2, verse 2 is talking about. Christ died. That's his past ministry. His present ministry, he is an advocate today for me. When I sin, he still works on my behalf. Those are theological truths about who Jesus is. And the next time you and I sin and we're like, I did it again. I got upset at the kids. Or I looked at that and I lusted. Whatever that is. We rejoice that Christ paid the sacrifice for my sins. And we rejoice that Christ is even now making intercession on my behalf before God the Father. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for who you are. We thank you for the truth that you are light, that you are holy, that you are distinctly other than we. We thank you that you have made provision that even when we do sin, that we can be forgiven and that we can be restored in our relationship to you. We pray that we would rejoice in your grand plan and that we would take advantage of that plan on a regular basis. That it wouldn't be something that we save for uh, the next time we have the Lord's Supper or save for the next time we, we come into the church, but that it would be a regular pattern of our life where we acknowledge our sinfulness and that we rejoice in the fact that you have made the ability for us to come before you and to receive forgiveness for our, for our sins that separate us from you. We pray that these truths would encourage us and strengthen us as we go through um, an another difficult week. And in your name we pray. Amen.